Welcome to The Driven Entrepreneur, where we sit down with visionaries, trailblazers, and entrepreneurs and discover why and how they do what they do. We'll get the backstory, plus plenty of life and business lessons along the way. Here's your host, Matt Browning. Hey, welcome back to The Driven Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Matt Browning. And this week has been just an outstanding week, really, in my life. I hope it has been for you. Thanks for listening, subscribing, rating, reviewing if you haven't. Please do that if you have. Thank you for that. This week, this week, let's jump right in with some really, really cool marketing lessons this week. My guest today is Philip Stutz. Um, Philip has an interesting story because there's two parts of his marketing world. One is he's fighting a rare incurable disease called achalasia, and he spent five years ignoring it, uh, yet now he's on this mission to find a cure, and he absolutely believes and is 100% certain he will find a cure as he pursues that. He's also the author of the Fire Them Now book, The Seven Lies Digital Marketers Sell. And I can't wait to get into the story of how that actually ties together. He's a bestseller, uh, best-selling author, of course, with that book. Um, and he's one of the masterminds behind the, cur- uh, behind the curtain of political marketing. From the age of 22, he spent over 20 years in political marketing experiences, multiple Fortune 200 companies. Uh, and he's, he's contributed to over 1,200 election victories including hundreds of House of uh, U.S. House campaigns, dozens of U.S. Senate campaigns, and even three U.S. presidential victories. He is the one and only Philip Stutz. You've seen him as a keynote speaker. He's been all over the place, more than 200 national TV appearances, including ESPN, Fox News, Fox Business, MSNBC, and CNN. You've also seen him on some popular podcasts like uh, Gary Vaynerchuk's The Daily V, James Alcher's show, the Adam Carolla show, the Dr. Drew podcast, Jay Abraham's Ultimate Entrepreneur, and many, many more. Philip, welcome to the show. How are you? Man, that was too long. Thank you. Can you believe that? Look, it's not my fault you've done so much with your life. I I would tell you I haven't gotten, I haven't started, but okay, I'm good. I'm ready to serve your audience today. I love it. Well, let's, let's jump in. And first thing, you know, the, the hook in the very beginning, I want, I want to hear your story about um, is, you know, Achalasia, you have this, you find yourself with this rare incurable disease. You got diagnosed in 2012. Um, What is that? And how did you find out about it? Well, I found out about it. That's probably the easiest way to start. I uh, was eating cereal in my kitchen one morning many years ago, and I just couldn't get the food down. And I was having to like drink the milk to get it down. And I was like, this is weird. And over time, it just that that sensation got more consistent. And I spent a year and a half going to doctors who said, I don't know, you know, (laughs) and I, uh, Finally, after about 18 months, I was diagnosed with achalasia, which affects about one out of 100,000 people. Basically, the muscles and the nerves that push food down into your stomach are dead for me. They're dead. They'll, they're dead forever, right? They'll, they'll never come back. This is an incurable disease. The one out of 100,000 that get this disease are typically in their 70s and 80s. And I was in my 30s when I was diagnosed. And I've had 15 minor procedures on my esophagus. Um, in the last few years, I've had three major surgeries. The last one, Matt, they literally, my esophagus had curved. So food not only was not going down without water, but it was sticking in there. 
Um, and so they, they pulled it straight. They cut 25% of my stomach out. They wrapped that flap around my esophagus uh, and stapled it all together. And one day that will come undone. And the doctors at the Mayo Clinic where I was being treated looked at me about two and a half years ago and said, you know, you know, they were just updating me. And this is two and a half years ago. So I'd been with the disease for five years. And the doctor, and I said, you know, docs, what, 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 I know this is incurable, but like, what's the long-term prognosis? How long does this wrap last? And they said, Philip, you've had too many surgeries. Your esophagus kind of looks like an upside down pom-pom. It's been shredded, right? So food can go down. And this last surgery is is your last. And after that, we're going to have to have an esophagectomy um, and a feeding tube, most likely for the rest of your life. And, you know, I'm in my early forties at this point. And I went, well, when? And they said sometime in the next five to 10 years. Oh my gosh. And I, and I went, what? And now the, what is the most is kind of humorous to me now, because I'd had this thing for five years. I'd never Googled the word achalasia. That's how ignorant. That's how uh, I, this was a disruptive disease in my life. And I stuck my head in the sand and did nothing about it. I was scared. Um, I was probably, I probably had a lot of shame, as weird as that sounds. I think, you know, the fact that I had this disease that I couldn't, that I felt uh, self-conscious about eating around people, all this stuff. And it really affected everything in my life. And I'm driving home from the Mayo. Oh, and I remember leaving the Mayo Clinic that day. And I said to the doctor, well, I don't know if I accept that. And he giggled at me (laughs) or smiled. And he pats me on the back and says, Philip, your disease is what it is. Take your medications. By the way, those medications have long-term dementia effects. And he said, take your medications, uh, and we'll see you in six months. And I'm driving home, and I go, this doesn't work for me. I, I have to figure this out. Yeah, this isn't the so, guy that, that, that I want in my corner. Uh, he, he already gave up. Well, you know, I don't even blame. you got to understand, even at the Mayo Clinic, they have to see 50 to 100 patients a day. You get five minutes. They're not thinking proactively about you. They're, they're trying to get you out the door because I got to see somebody in five minutes. And that's the reality of our healthcare system right now, right? And so I, I just drove home and said, I got to figure this out. And I didn't know what that meant. But the first thing I came home and did was actually Google accolation. What I realized was it was probably gut related and I needed to get my diet in order. And so over the next six months, I worked on that and found a, a world-renowned doctor who's now New York Times bestselling author named Stephen Gundry, Dr. Stephen Gundry, who wrote a book called The Plant Paradox. It was everything about my diet, and it spoke to me. I've been on the diet for two years, and I am off all of my medications for an incurable disease. I do not have to take them any longer. And the second aspect of this is I was at this conference with Peter Diamandis, uh, the Abundance 360 Conference Mastermind in, in Beverly Hills two years ago. And he gets on stage, Matt, and he says, hey, I want you to take a moonshot in your life. And a moonshot is something that you think is impossible and or people say is impossible and you're going to make possible. Yes. And I'm at this, I'm at this business conference, right? And I'm like, and I write down in my notebook, I'll find a cure to this disease in five years. The, the ignorance of an entrepreneur is kind of a beautiful thing because it's just the dumbest line you could ever write because there's no money in rare diseases. Like there's no research. I Googled the disease. No one's working on a cure. Like what, what, like, you know, so, but it's beautiful because what do I know? I'm just an ignorant entrepreneur. Like this is what I know. Right. So the uh, first thing I did was I came back from that conference and I, 
and uh, Diamanda suggests you do something immediately to kind of get momentum. And so I wrote an article and it appeared in Inc. Magazine and it was called Embrace the Change That's Coming. And it was my moonshot. I wrote that I was going to find a cure in five years because I figured if I put it out there, then I had to be held accountable. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, so I did. And like a week later, a researcher in this rare disease, you know, I guess it popped up in her Google alerts, right? Ironically. And, and, I, and she reaches out to me and she says, what are you talking about? There's no cure. There's no chance of a cure. What are you talking about? And I said, I, I don't know. I said, you know, I did read that like 20 years ago, there was a couple of doctors who said they thought stem cells could be a cure. 20 years ago, right? There's been no, nothing since then. And she's like, well, let me call around to some doctors and find out what they said. A week later, she calls me back. She says, Philip, I have found this one doctor at Johns Hopkins, and he has been a researcher, a research doctor on this particular disease, this esophageal disease, for like 25 years. You should talk to him. Well, Matt, that conversation with that doctor started a snowball effect that has completely altered the trajectory of my entire life. Um, we immediately hit it off. He, he said, I want to help you. I said, okay. We started putting a team of doctors around me. Peter Diamandis put another set of doctors around me. Um, today, I have about 15 to 30, uh, 15 doctors, 30 total people as a team working with me. And for two years, uh, the doc, this particular doctor at Johns Hopkins came up with uh, an idea, and we had to get it approved by the FDA, and we had to get it approved by the hospital, and we've had delays and starts and delays and starts. But uh, just last week, I started the first ever one-man clinical trial. It's never been done on animals. Just this last week, and you're, you're putting yes. yourself in the middle of it. Yeah, I'm the guinea pig. And he told me, don't say that. Please don't say that. And I said, well, I kind of am. But uh, it's a one-man first-ever clinical trial at Johns Hopkins. And what I went last week is they extracted stem cells out of my calf muscle. Best way to describe what I went through last week was with, no, with only lidocaine, they took basically a wine corkscrew and screwed into my thigh and it you know, extracted muscle stem cells, skeletal muscle, muscular stem cells. Yes. There's a stem cell clinic in Ohio that will take those stem cells and culture them, grow them for the next four or five months. And I will return to Hopkins this fall and they will start injecting these muscular uh, skeletal stem cells into my esophagus with the hopes that it regenerates the muscles and the nerves that are dead. And I guess the, the point is, is that I was told it was impossible by the Mayo Clinic. It may be impossible still. We don't know. We have no history. So this is a, we're just going to see what happens. But the bottom line for me and what changed so much in my life is that I am beyond grateful that I, was, that I have this disease currently. I'm beyond grateful that I have major eating issues. <laughs> I'm being, beyond grateful that I have an incurable disease. The disease saved my life. I was being disrupted. Uh, I was being disrupted in my own health and I did nothing about it. What were you and, being disrupted from? Do you feel like had this not happened, you, would, you were on a path that was destructive in some way that wasn't going to, there, there was no longevity in health or in lifestyle? What do you mean by... Sure. What were you interrupted for? I'm at a very high multiple susceptible to esophageal cancer still. Um, and I was going to have a feeding tube for the rest of my life. Now, right. I'm an active person. I like to travel. What does that mean when I travel? Do I have to 
take a bag? Like, I don't know what all this means, right? I still don't. I don't, I don't, I don't look at it now, right? I don't look at that's my fate. That, that was the disruption that was coming. And I was doing nothing about it. I didn't Google my damn disease for five years until the pain was so immense that I had to change. And I guess I always talk to business owners about this in marketing, which is I understand how they feel. Like we're in the most disruptive moment in human history, right? I've seen it in politics because the president that's in place right now is the most disruptive force, whether you like him or don't like him, that has ever existed in the, in the history of American politics. And I always talk about there, you know, we talk about, you know, automated cars and, and those are coming in the next, you know, five to 10 years, but it's like the second and third order consequences of those disruptions. Like the fact that cars will never know how, never have accidents. So like lawyers that sue for accidents, what are they going to do? Insurance companies that insure for accident protection will, will be out of business, right? Uh, governments that, charge money for speeding and parking tickets can't do that anymore in about right. five years how many municipalities Where does that, yeah they're they're what revenue where does it drastically down? down what happens to people on organ donor lists when there are thirty five thousand less deaths a year in the united states from traffic accidents or car accidents so you're and so you're talking really so, second third degree changes correct. that do you find by the way i've just given you one there are ten thousand that are coming and every business owner knows this and they're not doing anything about it. And so I speak to them about how we do, how we do marketing and politics, how it's the most innovative marketing um, platform that exists even better than corporate marketing. And I talk to them about how they can utilize it to disrupt what they're doing in the economy and where it's going. Give me an example of a difference between, cause when I think of political marketing and Forgive me because I'm not from DC, and I you, we talked before we started rolling tape about I just came back from DC, um, and you know when I think of political marketing, the only thing that comes to mind as a non-political person, mind you, is the the anti messages for the opponents kind of a thing. So in my world, it would be like saying, you know, that other speaker, he's terrible and he's stealing your money. Come to my seminar instead. That's the only thing I imagine. I'm probably way far off. What's the difference in your mind? in what you teach between political marketing and like say corporate marketing? Why are they drastically different? Um, and should they be? Well, first of all, you just identified the number one, the most powerful force in business marketing that businesses don't do. And if they did, they would have explosive growth, which is comparative advertising. Really? People are so, oh, and I'll give, you an, I'll give you a ton of examples of how it works for businesses where you draw massive comparison to your competition no one in your target market is offended and you, uh, you brand them as deficient. You become uh, the hero and every, like, we've, we've perfected it in what we do. But the way I talk about it is this. Um, I always think corporate marketing probably had an edge on political marketing until about 2004. And in 2004, I was the get out the vote director for George W. Bush's reelection uh, campaign. And in that campaign, it was the first political campaign in the history of American politics that took consumer data and targeted voters based on their voting habits and the consume, their consumer data. So what magazines they subscribe to, what TV shows they watch, things like that, because we could get it, right? That had never happened in the history of American politics. It was the most innovative moment ever in American politics. So before that, then it was only, you'd simply look at... Uh, voting history and correct and, and, and make assumptions. Yeah. Wow. 
And, and by the way, so we were not advantageous to corporate marketer. And, and so Bush in that campaign had the most innovative marketing campaign that had ever been run until 2008. When Obama <laughs> took that same data mindset, utilizing data, and overlaid it with social, social media, media platforms. Right. And that had never been done before. And that was the most disruptive moment in the history of American marketing, uh, American political marketing until 2016, when Trump took data, social platforms, and branding and married it all together to have the most disruptive, innovative campaign so on, in a marketing aspect that had ever been run, whether you like them or not, that's the fact. And what happens is, Matt, the reason I say this, and I can give you tons of examples, right? We can talk for days on this, but in politics, you win or you lose. There is no, did we increase our ROI by 5% on this one particular ad campaign? Like, we don't talk like that. Our entire model is based on whether we win or we lose. And there is a scorecard, and the scorecard is election day. And there's a publicly available database called the Federal Election Commission that posts every client I work for. So all of my competitors know whether I win or lose. And you better believe they will cut my legs out from under me when I, if I lose more than I win. And no one will hire me. And so we are forced like crazy to innovate, 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 innovate. I mean, every day we innovate. And when you have that mindset as a marketer, then you're not thinking about how do I make money? How do I, like, how can I sell this client on something cheap and easy? My thought process is how does this client win? How does this client grow? And when they win or they grow, then I can make money. So I put my priorities always before them, always, because I'm out of business if I don't. And so for me, it's, it's, that, it's how that looks. I'll give you one example. You probably won't even understand. I mean, it probably is... Totally against our, our you, it's not in the ballpark of what you're asking about. Bring it, but let's it do is, it. It's called long-term versus, and I talk about this, this is my first lie in the book, you know, the seven lies digital marketers sell. In politics, in over 20 years, I've never had a contract that was not month to month. Every client that has ever worked, I've ever worked for, could fire me at any moment. There are no long-term contracts. What I found in, in interviewing 100 CEOs for this book was that Every single one of them had already fired one or two marketing agencies. And the problem they had was they got locked into a six or 12 month contract with them. And when they didn't, the marketing agency didn't perform, they still had to pay the marketing agency. It doesn't work like that in politics. Either I'm innovating and growing the voter share for a politician every single month or they fire me. So what do you think my priority is? in the way I look at my business clients. When you're looking Every, at a, in politics, you're, you're a win-lose scenario where that's like, right. you either win or you lose and that's the end of it. So there's only one game. Do you find that, like, does that drive you even more? Do you did you think about the political clients like at night when you're laying your head on your pillow early in the morning? Were you more in depth compared to, and not saying you aren't, you aren't with business clients, but compared to maybe the average marketer in business, do you feel like you're Obviously, you're more invested, but emotionally invested, mentally invested. Um, in the shower, you're coming up with a new idea. Like, is, is that happening on the politics because of the win-lose scenario? And the month-to-month contract, yes. And the fact that if you want a successful agency, you better win more than you lose. I'll tell you this. And if there was a three-year period in my career where I had 20 days off total, including weekends. 20 days off over three years. 
three years, oh 20 God. total days off. So do I think about my clients at midnight when I can't sleep? Yes. Um, am I in the office seven days a week? Pretty much. Um, and I'm in the office six days a week now, right? Uh, but yeah, that's, that's my mindset. And if you're a business owner, who's looking out for you on your marketing side? Is it someone that puts the business's interest first or do they put their own interest first? And so that's just the model of how I've worked my entire life. And when I found all these business owners telling me this struggle they had with the contract, I went, oh my goodness, you know, you got to fire these guys now. And they go, well, we can't. So yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, basically, and you know, think about this. In the last three years, uh, my company has uh, had 206 product launches that became number one in their market. 206 out of 245. Except they're politicians, not products. <laughs> and they had to become number one because there is no number two. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, all right, so I'll give you a great example of what I mean by that. So uh, there was in, I think it's Utah's fourth congressional district, there's, um, there was a race this past, in 2018. It was Mila versus Ben McAdams. Um, there were 294,234 votes cast in that race. Uh, ben McAdams, a Democrat, beat me in mail love by 694 votes. 694 votes out of 230,000 plus votes cast. Wow. Think and, about this. What if you were a 15.5% or something? Yeah. I mean, it was decided by, you know, less than 0.001%. But my point is this. That was a four and a half month campaign from the primary to the general election. There was $9 million spent. 694 votes would determine the winner or the loser. What if I were to tell the, a business owner listening, reverse this, take out Mia Love and Ben McAdams and put your company and your number one competitor in place and you have four and a half months. And the, after four and a half months, there'll be 200,000 customer transactions and 694 would be the difference between whether you win or you lose. And if you lose, you're out of business forever or at least for the next two years. And if you win, you become number one in the market. Like, how fast would you move? How fast would you innovate? That's such what a, we do. Such a different frame for business. Because, you know, what, what's your take, Philip, on some of the, the culture in business lately, in the last 10 years-ish, where we're looking at more, you know, looking at the win-win, looking at, hey, let's all come up together. We're, you know, I want, I want my place to be a great place to work. I want to take care of our people. I want to make an impact in the environment. I want to do this. We want to do that. We have these ideals, which I love that. What's your kind of commentary on that culture that business is becoming in comparison to the marketing side that you've derived from politics? Well, politics, the culture side of our business is, is historically been actually pretty bad, right? Uh, because people are going so hard that they don't step back and think about it. But <clears throat> I mean, I recognize that the companies that put culture above all else are the companies that have the best success because what it is, is they just think of others before they think of themselves. And so it's actually something I embrace. I mean, I've created a, we have a culture, we call ourselves a culture company at my two marketing agencies. And it's based on two things, give more than you take and always be growing. That's it. That's all we have. We, that's all we talk about. Everything we meet about is, are we giving more than we're taking and are we always growing? It's, whether it's personal or it's anything else. And what we found is we have, you know, I think of the 25 employees we have, um, 23 of them are millennials or Gen Z. 
and no one has left our company in the last 15 months. And it's the culture. And this is what I tell businesses all the time. Like you're either a commodity in their eyes and replaceable, or they're going to look at and say, these people understand me. And I think really, Matt, I think I get this in this sense. I have to think about the voters more than I do the politician. When we work with businesses, I have to think about what their customers or their clients think before I tell them how great they are and we should be running campaigns. I actually base everything I do on data, you know, whether it's customers, clients. And, and we built, we understood that because that's how we look at, we, we must understand that customer base, that voter base, and serve to them first before it's what we want to talk about. And I think that applies to culture as well. That's a really, really good answer. I love that you can embrace the the positive because you don't have to embrace the, the culture of how politics has gone, right? As far as the the voting and the tearing down. But I love that it sounds like you're really embracing the the attitude of, of not giving up, the attitude of I don't care about ROI. I care about doing whatever it takes in a positive way though, especially in business, to be number one and and the focus on just what how much more would you accomplish if uh, if everything was about, I'm either number one or I'm not. Like, I think I'd probably accomplish different things. I'd approach it differently. Um, and, and I probably wouldn't, I wouldn't settle for some of the results I've had as I think about my business. And, and I'd also say like, you know, you've probably had to hire outside vendors before. Did they take risk off the table so that you succeeded before they did? No. Because that's, the key, that's the key to the whole thing. And I only know this because that's all I've ever had to do in politics. So <laughs> when I would go to when I'd go to uh, businesses and I, you know I say, look, uh, we have a, a bunch of different offerings. Where basically they get a free trial with us for a few free weeks, few months, with no risk attached to it whatsoever, right? And uh, and I, that my thing is I'm going to take the risk off. I'm going to have total transparency. You know, we've built all the marketing dashboards for our clients to watch their ads in real time. And we, we have no way of escaping failure in my company. And that's a good thing because the more transparent we are, the more people are honest. And that's a culture thing. The more honesty, the more the client sees that from afar and says, I trust those guys. It's about building trust. You cannot, it's just like politics. A politician can't go up to a voter, Matt, and say, I demand you vote for me. <laughs> that doesn't work. I can't go to a business and say, I demand you trust me. I have to earn trust. Right. A politician has to earn the votes. And so we structured our marketing agency to earn the trust and build it so that they win before we win. And by the way, in all honesty, I'm going to ask you this question. How successful will I be if they have the first success before I do? And they being the, the business client. The client, right. Well, of course. And the great thing is all you can be is successful at that point, in my opinion. I'll, I'll be 20 times more successful than if I go sell them a bunch of things they don't need. Like, I, I don't understand it. I just find so much, uh, it's weird. The political guy is saying that the business marketing marketplace is unethical. It's just such an oxymoron. I don't know, I don't know where to go with that. Well, I, I appreciate it though. Cause you know, the other thing too, that you mentioned earlier is when you're, you're building up also as a marketing agency, political and also in business, you're building up a brand for yourself and you only build a brand based on the results you've delivered. It's not about like, you're, you're not going to go and say, Hey, I've, I love that you said, you know, you've worked on three U.S. presidential victories. You don't say, hey, I've worked on three campaigns. Well, how did you do on those? Well, they all lost. 
I but, actually worked but, on eight. But I made a total, whole bunch of. So I had five that lost. Well, there you so. go, right? <laughs> but, but you're not looking at the five that lost and said, oh, yeah, look at all the money I made from that. You should pay me too. No one's going to pay you for it. No one's going to bring you in. But when you can say, listen, I worked my tail off for this long and here's the result we got, how, like that, the results build trust. You don't have to explain yourself at all. So, guys, the book is Fire Them Now The Seven Lies That Digital Marketers Sell. Um, man, what a, <laughs> now I, I really get the fire them now. Um, you can go to, well, you can get the book on Amazon and wherever books are sold, I'm sure. Yeah. But yeah. you also have a, a free five minute marketing audit you could do. Tell me about that real quick as we get to our, the twilight of our time together. You can go to Philip Stutz with two T's, philipstutz.com slash audit. And tell me about what a marketing audit is from your perspective. Well, part of the process of talking to all these CEOs from Fortune 500 CEOs to small businesses was they all said, you know, I don't know if I'm being taken advantage of. Uh, by the way, the economy, you know, I gave you these examples of the economy being disrupted and I don't know what I should do. I'm, I'm being told I need to run all these digital ads. And by the way, why are you running digital ads? And I own a digital marketing agency. Why are you running digital ads if the data and your target market is not using digital in the way that other you know, marketing agencies are telling you? Like, you've got to go where the data tells you. And so I have so many people come up to me and say, well, what am I doing right and wrong? And I said, you know what? Let's create a free marketing audit. Uh, part of the culture that we have at the company is give more than you take. So we said, let's just do this. So I, we, you, know, you take, go to philipstutz.com slash audit, right? And you fill out this five-minute marketing audit. It's basically your digital marketing footprint, you know, your online footprint. And my team spends two business days pouring over everything you've, you've got going on. We can monitor SEO. We can monitor, look at through your website, your messaging, your video content. Uh, we can look, you know, monitor your emails and everything, like if you're sending out emails. And, stuff. and then we will come back with a seven to nine page report on what you're doing right and what you can improve. And we've been able to help the businesses we've worked with after that that have come to us and said, okay, let's work together. And by the way, you don't have to work with me. This is free. But the businesses that have come have seen an improvement of about 25 to 50% just on what we found through the audit. And really, the other thing is when we deliver the seven to nine page report, we'll do a 30-minute free consultation with you on it. So you get a seven to nine page report and a free consultation and it will lay out tactically all the things that you're doing right and you can improve. And, you know, that's sort of how we've just undertaken this. Let's continue to show value and help others who are really confused and, and need help. I appreciate the focus on being just so straightforward. And, and that's what I've gotten from you from the very beginning of our, of our conversation. So guys, philipstutz.com slash audit, get a five minute marketing audit. And I love, you know, one of the things he mentioned is why would you use digital, you know, people talk, I'm going to do Facebook ads, but then your customer base is on Instagram or mm -hmm. you're getting, you're, you're doing in-person experiences, but then you're trying to sell them something go where they are. And Philip's following the data rather than just what you think is a good idea. I think it's so smart. You can follow Philip on Instagram at Philip Stutz uh, and LinkedIn. We'll have all the links on the show notes and everything in iTunes. Um, Philip, as, as I, as we wind down our time together, it's kind of a final question you you've been through a, a, a ton and this this might be way off base but i'm just curious what you say with 20 years of, of political marketing and working in that world living in dc kind of playing the game working your tail off so to speak would you do anything differently and especially in relation to to the how the you've 
you found about this incurable disease and what you're doing now to go after it? Would you change anything in your lifestyle, uh, your stress, anything at all that you've done throughout your life? Or would you leave it all the same because it's brought you where you are? I mean, my path is my path. Um, I made so many mistakes um, on so many different levels and so many different things. And it's led me to where I am right now. So I, I don't really look back and say, well, man, I wish I, I mean, I, I, there's a million things I could have been better at, but I'm here where I am and I can only go forward instead of looking back. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, on the disease front, like yeah, I, Ryan Holiday in the book, uh, Conspiracy has a great quote. It's something like, uh, how do you respond when you're told something is impossible? Uh, is that the end of the conversation or the start of one, right? And what's the reaction to being told you can't, uh, that no one can? And one type of person accepts it and wallows in it, and the other questions it, fights it, rejects it. And I've been both. And I can tell you there's a lot more progress and purpose in the second part of that. Wise words, well said. Philip, thank you so much for your time, brother. I appreciate it. All best. I appreciate you having me and anything I can do to serve your audience, just let ask, okay? Thank you so much. Guys, that was Philip Stutz on political marketing being best for business. So excited about that. Um, thank you for listening. Make sure you follow Philip at Philip Stutz at Instagram and on LinkedIn and grab the five-minute marketing audit, philipstutz.com slash audit. Make sure you subscribe if you haven't already to the podcast. If you're listening to this in your car on one of the 16 AM FM stations that we're currently broadcasting coast to coast, thank you. Enjoy where you're getting to and make sure you go over to Apple or Stitcher or Spotify, iTunes, whatever it is, uh, and subscribe there as well. Sure appreciate you. Thanks so much. As usual, get out there and crush it.